1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we're interviewing Greg Tirico about internet trends. Hello, Ed. Hello, Ron. Well, hi, Greg. How are you? Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. We're sure glad that you could spend this time with us today. And I am delighted by your invitation, Ed. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's do full disclosure. Uh, Greg and I were colleagues at Sage. Greg has moved on to another opportunity. And first, tell us a little bit about yourself, Greg. Sure. Um, Spent most of my career working in
2: Fortune 500s, uh, running various aspects of marketing organizations. Um, Most recently, my attention was was grabbed fully by the social media space um, at an early point in time. Um, and now I'm I'm at an organization called Sprout Social, uh, a startup here out of the Chicago area. We focus on social media management.
1: And specifically, you are in charge of advocacy solutions and services. What what the heck does that mean?
2: Yeah, um, still a bit of a state secret around here. So uh, let me be. Um uh, a little general about it, right? Em- employees are great advocates for your brand, and, and we can help you sort of activate that employee base. Um, the, the general idea being that, you know, um, we used to say in the social space, if you're not participating, don't worry, your customers are already talking about you, whether or not you're there. Uh, and that's how you got people past the initial uh, discomfort with social media that like, well, you know, I don't want to start a Facebook account because if I do, then, you know, people might complain about my business in a public space. And I'd say, well, <laughs> they're already doing that. <laughs> um, yeah. so now, you know, we turn the tables a little bit. It's not about complaining of course. Uh, but your employees are already, um, advocating
1: on behalf of your brand in the social space. So why not formalize that and make it a little more real for them? All right, so I see that where that's going, that's, and that's actually I think going to be big in the in the coming years, and obviously why Sprout Social is invested and in, and in, and lured you away from from Sage, and we, we're uh, still wishing you the best of luck with that. But today we're going to talk about something that you and I have had several conversations in the past before, and I think is really applicable to our Soul of Enterprise audience, and that is uh, Mary Meeker's Internet Trends Report. Uh, it, the best thing we can probably do, Greg, is for, for have, to have you do a little bit of background on Mary Meeker and, and this report, because it's been around for a little bit of time, right?
2: Oh, yes. Um, she's been doing it for quite a few years. So Mary Meeker is, I believe, a partner, but it doesn't matter because she's not going to be offended if I get that wrong. At one of the largest uh, venture capital firms in Silicon Valley uh, KPCB or more commonly known as Kleiner Perkins Caulfield buyers right so so this VC firm is um, just about one of the largest they've I don't know what their current portfolio looks like um, but I'm sure that if we named five large Uh, digital or internet-based companies today, uh, KPCB has probably participated in any number of funding rounds for most of them, right? So massive VC presence in Silicon Valley, and Mary Meeker is one of their partners. Once a year, um, she trots out onto stage at a conference, um, at, at the Code Conference, and talks about internet trends. So she labels her presentation each year, internet trends and the year number. Then she dominates the search results in this case. So if everything I've said so far makes absolutely no sense to you, it doesn't matter. Just go out to Google and look for internet trends 2015 or internet trends 2014. And more likely than not, you'll find Mary's report at the very top of the list. And she does an exhaustive review of what she sees as the most significant trends for the year. And when I say exhaustive, she speaks for a good while, and the slide deck that I'm currently looking at right now that she's distributed is 196 dense slides full of charts and graphs and, and, and words, or as Homer Simpson would say, words, 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 words. Um, and she really digs deep into what she's noticing with respect to Internet trends. So that's, that's Mary, that's KPCB, and that's why the Internet Trends Report exists.
1: And probably for those of you following along at home, this might not be an easy show unless you've got a copy of the slides in front of you, and I just want to give a web address where you can go grab this. And certainly we will put this up on our show notes page for this show, but it's kpcb.com slash internet trends and there's two t's in that so it's internet ending in t and then trends beginning in t and you'll be able to get a copy of these slides and kind of follow along because as greg says there's 196 of these slides so one more quick piece of background on this greg you said that that mary has been doing this for quite some time is it close to 10 years now yeah it is so is this, this is this, this is not, not not something that's been you know just just recent, but she's she's followed these things for a lot. And I will have to say, as you and I have talked about them over the past what is it, three years or so, that we've kind of talked about this. Uh, there there have been some you know significant shifts and significant changes. And I'm, I'm just going to start out by you know calling out a slide number and saying, hey, I thought this was interesting. Greg, help me explain this. Help uh, unpack this for us uh, in your role as, as as my go-to social media person. And, and perhaps the, the first one that I want to ask you about is slide four where she talks about the fact that, that uh, uh, the United States, when compared to China and Asia except for China, Europe and the rest of the world, is only 10% of the Internet. And I, I was just kind of blown away by that.
2: Yeah, it, it's funny how U.S.-centric we can be in our perspective, right? Um, what I what I think is most interesting, interesting about this is that people have not yet wrapped their heads around the opportunity for commerce on the Internet that exists in both Asia at large and China specifically. Um, there are organizations operating as Internet firms in China that you've never heard of that are valued at almost as much as Uber is valued. And by the way, Uber is the highest valued private company in the United States. Companies, not only have I never heard of them, I, you know, unfortunately don't even know how to pronounce their name, right? Let alone, could I tell you what they do? Um, So, you know, all of that to say that the opportunity, particularly in China, but in Asia, for for commerce-related activities on the internet is large. And we see that with a lot of stuff, right? We see with Apple, I mean, look at, um, look at the, the rate of growth for Apple in China. Look at the number of stores they're opening on a regular basis. They're, I believe in the past couple of months they've opened 40 additional stores in China. That's an enormous level of growth. And to put yes. it really in perspective, I, I heard a stat the other day to, to stay on, on, on Apple as a topic. Um, there's a reason here, but I'm going I'm to give you the stat and then I'm going to give you the real reason that it exists. But the stat itself, without the reason, sounds mind-blowing. Um, for the the upcoming version of Apple Maps, when Apple releases a new version of iOS and a new version of Apple Maps comes out, they're finally including transit directions, which is something that Google Maps has had for a long time. And I think it's a it's a gap for Apple and their Maps program. So they're finally launching transit directions for Apple Maps. And there are like 17 cities in the United States that they're launching. Transit uh, inside of Apple Maps were you know um, Manhattan Chicago uh, los Angeles san francisco all, all the sort of usual suspects, right, but the footnote inside of of their marketing material says seventeen countries in the United States and three hundred and twenty three country uh, cities in China wow. three hundred and twenty three cities in China will receive transit uh, information inside of Apple Maps on the day that it launches in comparison to the seventeen cities. In the United States, and if that doesn't give you a little bit of a hint as to where Apple's attention currently goes, uh, it should. Now, okay, the real reason why that's possible: um, so uh, China has a centralized organization that allows for the easy sharing of transit information across cities. So that kind of takes away a little bit from the idea that you know that Apple would be focusing all of their time on the 323 cities in China because they just view it as a more important market. But nonetheless, right. The the comparison between the number of cities in Apple Maps that are supported in the United States versus China, what you see on slide four in Mary Meeker's presentation when it comes to the fact that that growth in uh on the Internet is primarily going to come from China and India. You know, the, the US and in particular Europe are largely flat in terms of, of desktop internet growth. Um all of this points to massive opportunities. And and they're not just opportunities that are localized, right? This is the internet we're talking about. What I found most interesting about this slide is that there are 2.8 billion internet users. And do you know how many users there are monthly active users there are on Facebook? No, how many? 1.4 billion. Those are monthly active users. So, wow. if we think about the number of people that are registered for Facebook and maybe never used an account or registered for Facebook and then forgot their password and registered again, it, it has every single person who uses the internet at some point in time registered for
1: a Facebook account? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, it seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? But, it's, it sure does, doesn't it? Wow. And and speaking of like Facebook and China, all of this kind of comes to together for me on, on slide six where she has a this compare-contrast slide of, of global public internet companies ranked by market cap. And the first list is from December of nineteen ninety-five. Uh, she's got the top fifteen. Um thirteen of the fifteen are from the United States in nineteen ninety-five. And uh, one is from Germany, one is from Canada. In, in 2015, uh, we have let's say one, two, three, four. Four are from China. The rest from the United States. But here it was the the real kicker for me. There's only one company that was on the list in 1995 that still exists today, and that company has barely yeah. made it. <laughs> they barely <laughs> made it. And that company <laughs> is Apple. And and what is interesting is the market. Their market cap. Was uh, three point nine uh, million. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, million. No, billion dollars at that time. Yep. It's now seven seven hundred and sixty three billion. So they've only gone up by seven hundred and sixty billion <laughs> in market capitalization <laughs> in a 20, 20 year period. Uh, it, and th- this is just absolutely incredible. So uh, w- address this. We've got about two minutes till our next break. So.
2: Yeah, change is constant, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, that's what this tells me. And and if you think that what you were doing twenty years ago in any respect, um, uh, you, you know, when you when you look at your business and and you think that it can still work today, um, you should reevaluate, right? Um, and and not be, that's not like. You know, wizened individuals speaking down to someone. I'm not a wizened individual. You should reevaluate because there might be opportunities out there that you're not seeing today because you're still operating with a mindset from 10 or, you know, 20 years ago, right? I mean, 20 years ago, Netscape was at the top of the list. Wow. So change is constant.
1: Yep. Yep. And and one more thing before we get to the break, I want to talk about sl- slide eight relatively quickly. We've got we've got a minute, but you know, and this is right along the lines with the, with with what you were just saying, which is, hey, maybe you ought to address your business model. But uh, she provides a list of six sectors on slides ten of the U.S. economy and the internet impact to date. The first, of, of course, is consumer, which is about 100 percent impact. And then the one at the bottom of the list, not surprisingly to uh, myself, probably you, Greg, or, and I know, Ron, is going to be government and regulation, which has only used about 10 percent of the Internet from an impact perspective. So it's time that they get on the wagon for this one. When, when, when the healthcare um, industry is outpacing you, yeah, I think you've got some work to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Greg, Greg, this is fascinating. We look forward to hearing more from you about this, but right now we're going to take our first break, and we uh, appreciate uh, all, all that you've shared with us so far today and look forward to more. But first, if you want to get a hold of us, get take a look at our new website, which is com. Actually, Greg was helpful in, in be, the beginnings of putting that together, and we thank him for that. Um, also, well, you can also email us at tsoe at com, and Don't forget that we can follow along with the show at hashtag AskTSOE. But first, we want to hear from our first sponsor, Leading Results.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us.
3: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
4: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Greg Tarico talking about Mary Meeker's Internet Trends 2015 report. And I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at tsoe at verisage.com. and also uh, keep those iTunes reviews coming. I know a few of you have uh, given us some more reviews and we really appreciate that. So Greg, I, I guess the historian in me uh, looked at slide number seven and just it- it's the evolution of content discovery from 1975, basically, to 2015. And I just, I find the pace of change. When you look at this graphically, it's kind of startling. She points out that the VCR came on the market roughly in 1976 or so, the cable TV a little bit before uh, the 80, 1980, and then, of course, AOL, um, like in 1984 or so, DBS satellite. But then when you go from 1995 wow, you get Yahoo and then Google and broadband and Apple TV and just all of these different, you know, Netflix, Hulu, the eighth-generation game console. It just seems like the pace of change is just dramatic.
2: It, it does. I, I do want to call out one thing here that she's doing on this chart, right? If we look back at 75 through, say, 95, where it's really kind of flat and there are only about, Five significant companies that, or, or or content discovery mechanisms that she's listed here. If you look at some of the ones that are all crowded up front at at you know more or less our age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, things like time shifted viewing, smart TV, um, Hulu Plus. I, I'm not convinced that if we look at this with a 2035 lens as we look back to 2015, that we're going to really care about that stuff. Right. <laughs> so, so you know, some of it is insignificant, probably when you fast forward through time. But the, there's no denying that the pace of change has become so rapid. Was it Eric Schmidt, I believe, who, who maybe incorrectly, but nonetheless, the stat stuck. Right, um, was quoted as saying that some something along the lines of. Every year we create more data than ever existed from the beginning of humanity until the year before. Uh, you know, effectively, it, does, it doesn't matter what the exact quote is, but effectively saying that, you know, the, the rate of data creation is exponential at this point. And we know that to be the case. If you've got 2.8 billion people using the internet and, and even a fraction of them are creating content, then then the creation of content and the way in which we discover content, of course, those those two items are going to evolve almost hand in hand, Right. Um, she goes on in this report to then also talk about how we're discovering content with, with respect to particular tools. She spends a lot of time inside of this report talking about photo discovery or visual discovery of information. And I, we can see that with the kids today, right? The kids love their Instagram. Um, uh, Myself included, uh it, it's just a—it's a great way to spend some time and dive into content that's being created by individuals that I'm personally connected to. Right, uh, the idea that I could do that even years ago didn't—you know—really exist. It, it existed. I—you uh, know—we could use Flickr. I suppose it was around about five years ago, but that was about it. Right. um So there's no doubt in my mind that this pace of change will continue. Um, whether or not our brains can keep up with it, I think will be just fine. Um, largely because while the different ways in which we can discover content is changing rapidly and growing at a greater pace, um, the important things will always bubble up, right? Um, and they'll always bubble up based on who we're connected to and what we're interested in. Now, some people, uh, actually, an individual in particular whose name I forgot, gave a talk, a TED talk about the filter bubble. If you, Ron, do you do you, re, do you recall that individual's name? I'd love to give him credit. No, Ed. T- no, yeah. no, filter no. bubble. No, okay. but but it's a it's a TED talk. It, it's a um, it wasn't a TEDx talk. It was one of the major TED talks, and it was about the filter bubble and about how as we connect ourselves to individuals in the social space, we connect ourselves to individuals that we know in the real world, and by doing so, right, these individuals are typically more aligned with our way of thinking than not, and so we create this filter bubble around ourselves that weeds out information that might be contrary to our own perspective. And is that good for us or bad for us, right? You can very much argue that it might be bad for us. But then I look at this chart that's on slide seven and the pace of content discovery and the way that it's changed. And there's no doubt in my mind that if you even have an inkling of wanting to be exposed to someone else's perspective, the opportunity awaits you just fire up the internet.
4: That is such a great point, Greg, because, you know, that's one of the, um, Criticisms you hear about the internet, oh, you know now that everybody goes and gets their own news source and creates their own footboard they 're living in this bubble, um, and they 're only getting fed what you know reinforces their beliefs, but I, you know that 's nonsense i mean there 's always been a lot of crap in the culture, a ton of crap, and like you said, the being able to have all this content at your fingertips. You're going to be exposed, I think, to more ideas outside of your own belief systems, and 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 easier. You know, it's easier to find it. So I, I I I agree with you. I think that's a that's a really great thing, and that and it's really striking when you look at it the way she's grafted on this chart.
2: Agreed. Can we go? Can we go to one of my favorite charts in the entire deck? Sure. Would love to. So it's. It's slide twenty-one, and for those that are that are not following along, it's a it's a rather simple slide, and I can explain it. It shows Twitter, Facebook, and Google uh, all in a mobile interface. And what Mary's talking about here is um, some of us have called it social commerce. Um, other people might call it mobile commerce. It it, it doesn't matter what we call it. Um, we're talking about buying things using Twitter, Facebook, and Google on your phone. All right. So there's an there's a A Twitter uh, mobile screen, and there's a little buy button that's circled. There's a Facebook mobile screen, a little buy button that's circled. There's a Google mobile screen, and a little buy button that's circled. Um, I get where she's going with this, but I have to be honest, and I feel a little bit curmudgeonly and and maybe kind of like the the old man in the room when I say this. I'm not convinced that the example shown here or the idea, just generally speaking, that I would see a message on Twitter— with a buy button and buy that, that T-shirt or that koozie or, I mean, Lord only knows what, right? Immediately and without additional context is really where we should be focusing our attention when it comes to mobile commerce. I would argue that Amazon has it licked in comparison to any of these other companies. I, I feel like a buy button on Twitter or a buy button on Facebook is lacking in context when is it going to be delivered to me? Is, is it available now or do I have to wait for a month for it to get shipped? Who's the vendor? Do they have good ratings? What, who am I buying? For? Is it shipping from Hong Kong or is it shipping from, you know, the, the Midwestern United States? I, this, this status update with a buy button feels to me like the wrong way to approach how we analyze and look at mobile commerce. So this is actually an, uh, an area in which I differ from Mary's uh, proposed idea.
4: No, that's a really good point i I had the same feeling I, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable like checking into a hotel for seven days you know uh, on Google and, and buy with Google but I have no problem doing it on Amazon so maybe I guess if they if they acclimate us to this they could probably do it but it was, it's gonna take some time isn't it
2: yeah that's a that's a good point right it's it's about trust um, and while I I, I don't want to get into a bit about, debate about whether or not we trust Facebook or Google. Uh, that's that's a show entirely <laughs> left unto itself, right? Um, we we trusted that the experience when shopping on Amazon is going to be a positive one. And we don't yet trust that the experience of shopping on Twitter or Facebook or directly from Google is going to be a positive one because there are too many factors that we don't have the answers to. Uh, me personally, the, the reason that I enjoy buying on Amazon is because I know that something is going to be shipped to my house in two days, or less in some instances, right? I might even get it in a day because I have so many Amazon fulfillment centers near me. Um, if I hit the buy button on Twitter, I don't have the answer to that question. I know with Amazon that if I don't like something, I can return it, and Amazon prides themselves on excellent customer service. If I buy on Twitter, d- does Twitter have a commerce organization that's going to handle the the return of an item that I'm, that I'm not uh, happy with, or do I have to deal directly with the vendor? And if I have to deal directly to, with the vendor, I'm sure they have a restocking fee and a 15% charge, and a, it's going to be a miserable experience for me, right, which is why I believe that that, that trust factor with respect to why we buy from Amazon and are a little less um, interested in buying using, using a, a social button on Twitter or Facebook is it, it's just not appealing to us yet.
4: Right, they they've got to overcome that all those uncertainties you mentioned the restocking fee. Where when am I going to get it? All those questions. Those are those go through everybody's mind when you buy something, especially if it's something yeah. that's substantial. The the other no no, uh, no. oh go ahead, Grace, go ahead go ahead. Well, I was just going to say uh, that the the time spent per adult user. I'm going to a different slide, but I found this interesting too, where she talks about um, mobile, desktop, laptop, and other connected devices. We seem to be spending about 5.6 hours a day, uh, and 51% of that is, is on our mobile devices, basically, which is really, really interesting when you compare that to the advertising spend on mobile devices. It hasn't gone anywhere near um, hmm. the level of the um, proportionate to the time, of, the time that we spend on these devices.
2: Correct. Correct, and this was in her Internet Trends 2014 report as well. And she she almost said the exact same thing. I, it feels to me like the advertising space is struggling right now to find exactly what works from a mobile, either display or text perspective. Um, we've seen a couple of examples that work really well. For um, uh, one, would be the mobile app install. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, you've seen ads in your stream that encourage you to download an app from the app store based on the device that you're using. Those work really well. But we are still seeking ways to provide a positive advertising experience using native advertising models. You know, that is to say, if you're in the stream and you're looking at posts from your friends... Here comes a native ad. It's in the stream. It looks like a post from your friends. Is it a post from your friends? No, it's not. We're we're sort of comfortable with that at this point, but we're still struggling to determine what really works from a native advertising perspective without crossing the line and confusing people as to what's an ad and what's not an ad. And Google's come under fire in particular for that lately because if you look at all of the search results inside of Google, even on a desktop, right, like 70% of the screen are... A combination of Google ads at the top plus Google specific search results to their own properties, and then about 30% of the screen are third-party search results, which used to be, by the way, 100% of the screen. So, you know, when we when we uh, not that I want to suggest this now, but if we were to transition into a conversation about why Google is coming under fire inside of the European Union for some of their practices. I think we might have a bit of a smoking gun there with respect to the how they've structured their search results.
4: Right, right. Well, you've got – yeah, there's a lot of issues in here. The right to forgotten laws. I listened to your podcast with Ed this morning, all five of them, and it, that was some really interesting discussion. I think you asked Ed if he had ever clicked on a pop-up ad on his mobile device, and he said only by accident. <laughs> I was like, yeah, me too. But, Greg, we have to take a break. We're up against it on time here. And, folks, we'd like to remind you, you can check out the show, and we will post um, – Mary Meeker's slide deck and information about Greg on our show notes at the soul of But now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba.
1: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
4: What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul
3: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here.
4: Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A -S S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
1: And we're back with Greg Tirico of Sprout Social. He is in charge of advocacy solutions and services, and we're glad he's here. We're talking about Mary Meeker's Internet Trends Report. And Greg, I want to turn your attention to the slides of the, the, the mid-20s. You know, we t- you guys were talking lots about mobile, 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 and I think that that's, that's really interesting. But I want to talk about the slide 29 um, and then transition to, to slide 31. The, he, slide 29 is, is just a, a, a screenshot of a tweet from Aaron Levy, and he says, Enterprise software used to be about Making existing work more efficient. Now, the opportunity for software is to transform the work itself. And boy, that's something that jumped right out at me. Me me too, Ed. Just so you know. (laughs) Yeah. And And then she goes on and they're talking about like email. So let's just, you know, we'll keep it at the email level which is this idea of just going from your 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 old inbox and AOL or whatever system you were using, Outlook, and now to something called Slack. And I know you've done a little bit of research into Slack. Could you sh- share your, your thoughts on what Slack is, does, why it's important?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, but by, by the way, Aaron Levy is the CEO of Box, um, for those that don't recognize the name immediately. Um, so email, right, and now Slack. There's this, finally, this... Idea that collaborate quote unquote collaboration tools can overtake email. It finally seems to be more of a reality than just a pipe dream, right? People have wanted to replace email for a long time because email's annoying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, email gets your attention when you don't want it to. Um, you're expected to res- to respond to people. Um, sometimes multiple people might have the same question. You find yourself writing the same response to different people wondering, why do I have to do this more than once? Maybe I should just create uh, an auto response. And then you get text expander tools that exist because people are writing the same email over and over. And it's just, it's a, it's a cycle of lunacy in my opinion. Um, email is very much broken. I don't know that many people would want to disagree with us on that one. Um, it, the protocol works, the pro- the, The email protocol is not broken. But the idea that if I have somebody's email address, I can send them an email and expect a response and get angry if I don't get a response, that seems a little broken to me because who are you to say that you can have my attention when you want it, not when I'd like to give it to you? So Slack – is a really interesting challenge to the idea that email is broken. And, and we use Slack throughout the entire organization. So, you know, the edict came down, you will use Slack. And we all jumped on board. And let's see, I'm looking at my records right now. Um, I have received, outside of customer communications, a total of three emails today from the people that I work with. Three, three, one, two, three. That is... Um, not a world that I ever thought I would live in because all of the communication has moved to Slack, which means if you're interested in a particular topic within your organization, you subscribe to a channel in Slack, and when people talk about that topic inside of that channel – You all share the information. You all learn at the same rate. You don't have to ask the subject matter expert multiple times. I had a question the other day. I thought about sending an email, and at first I went, you know what? I should look in Slack and do a little bit of a search. I found my answer because all of the information is archived and stored for us to search through, and I never had to bother that individual with an email in which their relationship was a one-to-one, right? and they were answering that question just for one person. Instead, it's in Slack, and it's like this big dump of all of the knowledge that that we share as an organization, and it's a beautiful thing. The problem with these kinds of tools is that the adoption rate is low because the shift is so extreme. If you're, you're comfortable with email, you're probably comfortable with, say, Outlook or the Gmail environment, those being the two probably most prominent in the enterprise space. When you shift to Slack, it's, it's, it can be a world of chaos for you at the beginning because you don't know how to manage it, you don't know how to use the tool. It's not email. Um, So I think the only reason that their adoption rate might be suffering a little bit, and when I say suffering, um, Slack is considered to be one of the fastest growing startups in the world right now. So, you know, um, use the word suffering with a grain of salt, right? If adoption rates are suffering, it's because people are having a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea that Slack really can replace email. But again, three, one, two, three emails from people that I work with internally here at the organization today because all of our communication has moved to Slack.
1: I think a part of that also Greg too has to has to deal with trust. I mean, Slack is based on the premise that hey, listen, I am going to share this information willingly and openly with everybody who wants to see it. Whereas email still is like, well, I'm going to send this email to this person, but I'm going to BCC this person and there's like this kind of sub so it is almost as if you have to say, "All right, W- would I be willing to send every email that I send in my organization to everyone at mycompany.com? And I think the level of trust that happens in some organizations—the answer to that is a resounding "hell no," right? <laughs> yep. So yeah, you. Ha- you ha- th- and I think that's the, the the transformation. And maybe you're seeing it's a little bit easier in your organization than others. But I I want to move on because we've only got a limited amount of time left with you, and there's still so many uh, topics that I want to get to. One of them is on slide 50, uh, in which uh, talking about these chat platforms, that one in Korea, one in China, one in Japan. uh, I'm sure I'm going to mess up the pronunciation. One is Talk, uh, WeChat, and then Line. And the question that I wanted to ask you is, do you see any of these chat platforms as eventually having an impact in the United States or are we just uh, going to be forever stuck with the the, the, the framework of phone calls and, and chat are kept separate and we're not going to see these things merging together?
2: Yeah, Facebook has certainly tried. Yes, um, and failed at voice, it, really. Yeah, yeah, voice over IP calling inside of Messenger is something that you could do every day if you wanted to and from what I understand the quality is quite good um, but I've honestly never used it Mm -hmm. So uh, I may have just answered your question there. Uh, What I will say about messaging in general, um, it's a huge category. Um, It's massive. And if you remember, Ed, when we talked about Mary Meeker's report last year, she talked about the idea that notifications on your mobile device create this category of dark apps, right? These apps sit on your phone. You don't purposefully go to them but when they need to tell you something they send you a notification and one of the examples with dark sky so for those that don't know dark sky is a weather app that with with eerily accurate um uh predictability can tell you whether or not it's going to rain where you are standing at that moment in time right um uh, maybe i'm overselling it a little bit but that's no you're not much I, what
1: I have it right? use it ever since we talked about it and it is incredible Okay. Yeah.
2: So, you know, I don't pull up dark sky because I, I know what the weather is. I look out the window, I see the weather, or I have a number of weather apps on my phone, doesn't matter, right? But when dark sky needs to tell me something, it sends me a notification. Messaging is a lot like that, right? I view messaging as something that is an, is, is necessary on a mobile platform. And I have an, I have a folder on my phone called messaging, it's it's all for the it's for all the messaging apps. I consider Twitter a messaging app at this point. Facebook Messenger is a messaging app. Interestingly enough, I don't put the main Facebook app in that messaging folder. Um, I've got WeChat in there. WeChat in there. I've got Snapchat in there. Messaging is an- another way to get a notification for the individuals that you want to stay in contact with. And I'm reminded of what the desktop messenger environment used to look like many years ago when you had. You know, you had AOL Instant Messenger, and you had Hotmail Messenger, and, and you had all these different messenger platforms running. And then the messenger platforms that, that aggregated all of them and gave you one interface to all of those messaging platforms um, became a, became more common than not. And I think we'll watch this category evolve over time. I will say, though, that you're probably correct, Ed, in that in, in the United States as an established market, um, is there room for line? Is there room for WeChat, especially when most
1: people are – Pretty comfortable with Facebook Messenger. I'm not convinced that there is. Yep. And moving on now, uh, slide 64 is in a, in a series of slides, and this is talking about user-generated reviews specifically on Airbnb in that they have had 140% growth on on feedback at, at, to the tune of 44 million new reviews on Airbnb in the last 12 months. And, and that's just Airbnb, and I want to talk about this idea of, of reputation. Ron and I have, have talked a lot about this in the past, although I don't know if we've talked – That much about it during during the the radio show, and that is we really believe that that what's emerging here is a culture of reputation over regulation that is gonna that is going to be of a huge benefit to consumers. I mean, regulators cannot possibly keep up with all this stuff. But the reputation, if you know, somebody gets shot in an Uber cab. Uh, or in an Uber, you, the, the reputation of that that company suffers. So they're going to do everything with their in the, in their best interest to make sure that that doesn't happen. So what are your thoughts on reputation over regulation? Yeah, I had a lot of notes on this particular category
2: as it relates to Mary Meeker's presentation, and and what we've seen is is that over time, um, we've we've seen the growth of the, of the sharing economy, um, and and for those that that want a little bit more information about the sharing economy, there is an analyst out there who does a really good job of, of specifically analyzing, analyzing this space. His name is Jeremiah Owang, and I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly, but you can find him at web-strategist.com. He's a, he's a brilliant individual, and it actually has started, a in effect, a sharing economy uh, analyst organization, right? And so this, this sharing economy has has led to any number of online marketplaces and platforms. And when it comes to these marketplaces and platforms, what we're finding right now is that there are lots of questions and very few answers. Um, there are challenges all over the place. If you look if you look at Uber, for example, when it comes to reputation over regulation, um, one of the areas that they probably need to be a little concerned about right now is that in, in California, right, Uber employees are starting to be categorized as, as employees and not as contractors. Um, that, that's an area where I feel like the government, where I feel government regulation is going to catch up more quickly than not. But when we look at reputation versus regulation, to get back to your original question, Ed, um, I'm fascinated by what Airbnb in particular has done, uh, because never would I ever consider, uh, before Airbnb making, uh, a room in my house available to a stranger. That, that's, that's a recipe for disaster, Right. But if that stranger has a five-star rating and they've stayed at 55 Airbnbs, um, yeah, I'm going to trust that individual, right? Or I'm going to be far more likely to trust that individual and bring them into my home because they've already established themselves as an individual who knows how to use the system, who understands what's expected of them uh, from their hosts. And I can make a little bit of money on the side, so why not? And that's where reputation over regulation becomes really powerful. These reputation environments that exist inside of Airbnb and inside of Uber, and if you think you're the only one rating your driver when you drive in an Uber, you're wrong. Your Uber driver is also rating you, and you can be kicked off the platform just as easily as they can. That's a very significant shift. Um, yes, and regulation over, uh, reputation over regulation
1: is something that people should watch extremely carefully yes and related to to the quote that you just that you were just talking about which is and was later in in the presentation talking about uh the you know there used to be a situation where we had laws for people and laws for business and the question that was asked is what happens when people become business and it's the same thing so it's it's all it's all rolled together but we are up against our last break but we want to remind you that you can get show notes at the soul of and get a hold of us at during the show at hashtag ask tsoe and of course we love you to do reviews both on the book online at amazon.com and certainly of the podcast on version of this show on on itunes but right now we're going to hear from our final sponsor my employer sage <laughs>
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com
1: forward slash Voice America.
0: Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers. Your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today.
3: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to the soul of enterprise.
4: All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Greg Tarico talking about Mary Meeker's fascinating Internet Trends 2015 report. And, Greg, one of the slides, I think it's slide number 114, really caught my eye because it was a chart that asked millennials, which three benefits would you most value from an employer? And the top three, Uh, were training and development, which was 22%, flexible working hours, which was 19%, and cash bonuses, 14%. So this idea that millennials don't care about cash I think is way overblown. But it, it is interesting, flexible working hours, it goes back to what you and Ed were saying. I mean, I probably wanted these top three things too when I entered the workforce in the 80s, but I didn't have the means nor the opportunity to have the type of flexible working conditions that the younger generations can have now because of all of this, all of these devices that we have can work anywhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and, and that doesn't apply to millennials. I think we all want that. Um, You know, and and let's be clear about um, let, let's dispense of this millennial stuff right now, right? Uh, a, a younger workforce versus a more senior workforce, and let's just leave it at that. Is that cool with you, Ron? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all right. How about just so, all,
4: we're just all humans and individuals?
2: <laughs> yeah, I had not noticed that. That's interesting. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we talk about what a what a younger workforce wants, and flexible working hours is at number two. I think we all want that, right? As you as you. As you grow a family, as you have kids, you want to be there for their 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 you know their baseball game or or you know their event at school or wh- whatever it is, right? I, I really appreciate the fact that if I need to go to my daughter's school at nine a.m. on a Tuesday to see her receive an award, I can and I don't have to beg for some kind of reprieve from my sentence of working in order to do so. Um, and that's largely because. As technology has become more pervasive in our lives, so is work. Right, and, and the lines have blurred now. I do. Do you work eight to five? Ron? No, I don't, and I don't oh. know
4: anybody who does. And that was yeah, the other I thing. I, her cat. Her her sliding again. I'm sorry. I don't, I think it's 126 um, freelance category. She talks about 53 million in the USA. Uh, 34% of our workforce are freelance categories. And then she breaks down those categories, independent contractors, moonlighters, diversified work. I mean, I guess these would be like the Uber drivers and that type of thing. But that's pretty substantial. And, of course, that's being enabled by all of this fantastic technology that we didn't have back even in the 80s.
2: She, She spent a lot of time in this year's Internet Trends Report in comparison to previous years talking about freelancers, and, and there's there's actually a fairly significant portion of the internet trends report this year that goes through the different apps or websites or you know let's just call them services that have enabled individuals to be freelancers. Uber is an example, right? A um, great example. People who are Uber drivers. If you get into an Uber car, anytime you get into an Uber, I encourage you to talk to your driver about whether or not they like Uber. You will get fascinating. Um, responses back from them that, that vary all over the place. And what I find oftentimes is that particularly if you get into some of, their, some of the black car services that Uber offers, especially their SUVs, these are limo drivers. They they were limo drivers. They were working for a single company. They took themselves and their automobile, and they're now limo drivers with a book of business, and they use Uber to segment, to, to um, fill in the gaps when their book of business that they have isn't providing enough rides for them. I mean, that's... That's an example of technology enabling the sort of the freelance economy, right? And what I find fascinating about the shifts that Mary is talking about um, is something that I've talked about a lot before. And I'll, I'll ask you this question, Ron. Ron, do, do you save money for the future?
4: I try, yes, absolutely.
2: Okay, right. And when you save money for the future, I'm, I'm assuming, sarcastically, that you take all of the money you save and you invest it all in a single company, right? (laughs) Enron. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Enron. There you go. Right. So, so you can sort of see where I'm going with this flip the tables. Why do we consider it acceptable and, and preferred in fact, to, to earn all of our income from a single employer. So as income comes into the household, we consider it preferred and acceptable to earn all of that income from a single employer, a single point of failure, I might add. Right. But when the money leaves household and goes into savings, we would never consider would it acceptable bad. to put all in one place. That's a pretty
4: fragile system. It's so true. And it's so counterintuitive. And, I think Taleb deals with that in his book, right? Talking about somebody who knows a cab driver or whatever, he's independent and he makes more than the guy who keeps getting fired from his one job.
1: Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, and two so, two two quick points on this uh, that, that that one on either side of this one the other she takes this further and then says thirty one percent of freelancers can get a gig in less than twenty four hours, which I'm like that is just incredible. And if you throw Uber on there, it's probably less than twenty four minutes, really. And, but then then go the other way where, where she where she says this these little apps and stuff that people who even are working for for companies forty one percent of 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 people will buy an app this year that they pay for that they'll. Use Use for work, gosh! The IT people must hate that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and, and you guys, I was just talking. Speaking of Uber, I was just talking to a millennial uh, the other day, and she told me that not only, you know, of course, you can be an Uber driver and make pretty good money, but you can be an Uber ambassador, go to parties and stuff, and sign people up. They'll pay you thirty bucks an hour just to sit around social events and, and sign drivers up. And I thought, wow, this what what opportunities abound here.
2: That that is that is amazing. So now you're an Uber advocate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not even a driver on the system, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and and Ed, to your point, um, and this is why I think the training and development piece for millennials is so important. When you have systems like Udacity or any of the other really large, um, you know, uh, massive sort of online. Curricula systems, right? Udacity is just one example. There are lots of them out there. Um your opportunity for training and development is quite large. And at the same time, you're probably not going to wait around for your employer to pay for something to make you smarter, right? So if you're taking advantage of those systems, then you're actually already smarter than the individual sitting next to you. And so buying an app to get your to get your job done more efficiently is simply an extension of that. Um, if you have some kind of mental block against spending three, four, eight, fifteen, thirty dollars to get personally to get your job done at a higher level of efficiency or, or you know, to get your job done better, right, then then you need to think about how you're investing in yourself as a knowledge employee, right? You should be investing in yourself. You shouldn't be wholly dependent on your employer. I believe that at least two of us on this conversation today, if not all three of us, provide our own IT hardware for getting our jobs done,
1: right? We buy <laughs> yeah. our own laptops.
2: Yeah. Yes, yeah.
1: Yep. I've I've been been, been working for, with with Sage for thirteen years. I I have never uh, had a Sage issues laptop up until two years ago when I was sent one. Greg and you know the story because it was solely to do my expense reports and it sits here closed <laughs> until I do my expense reports. <laughs> uh-
2: so, you know, in the, in the knowledge, in, in any knowledge economy, today's or otherwise, right, you, you know that you are responsible for your personal development. And if you are responsible for your personal development, then don't wait around for an organization to hand you an opportunity for training and development. Take it. And, and inside of, of Mary Meeker's report this year, I think that statement is sort of an underlying statement behind what she's saying about the freelance economy. No, Greg absolutely. we have
4: we have a little bit less than a minute here but i wanted to ask you on her slide 120 she talks about uh 9% of retail sales are via the internet up from 1% back in 98 and and that strikes me as low i mean just intuitively low. you you would, you would yeah. think that that would be much greater but do you see that just continuing upward
2: Oh my goodness! Absolutely, I think we all do, right? Um, do you, I'm do you, fairly you, certain that I could I could start a business selling Amazon Prime cardboard boxes back to Amazon.
4: <laughs> do you think it will ever reach a majority?
2: It should. Yeah, that feels very natural, doesn't it, to you as well, Ron? It it does. Well, Greg, this has been
4: fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, What a great report. And of course, folks, we'll put all of this on our show notes. Uh, And Ed, what do we have for next week?
1: Next week, we are going to do a segment on Verisage laws. Those of you know that we're part of the Verisage Institute, a think tank that Ron founded. And several of us at the think tank have have the audacity to have created our own laws. So we're going to share with you, like, you know, like like the laws of physics. We have the Verisage laws. So we're going to talk about that. Oh, awesome. Well, I look
4: forward to that. Greg, thank you so much. And Ed, I'll see you in 167 hours.
1: Sounds great. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. Supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com.